Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome everyone to episode 74 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing this week? Hi, good. Um, I'm a bit tired so I don't really have anything to say other than I'm good and let's get into it. (laughs) People might like that. They might like us just jumping straight into things and having no personality whatsoever. That could be good. (laughs) But uh, we got some uh, Patreon shout outs this week. Yes, we do. Thank you so much and welcome to David Hilliander. Maddie and Marion, Trent Pendleberry, Alexandra Goldspink, Kirsty Bolsover, and Justin Wells. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we're discussing today contains graphic descriptions. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so as always, we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Anzac Day, Friday the 25th of April, 2014. John Pearson said it was a bleak irony that his brother Martin was killed on a day that was all about mateship and courage. This is an act of supreme cowardice, and I can't believe somebody's conscience hasn't got the better of them and they won't be struck by an act of guilt. I can't believe the extreme irony of someone leaving a vet by the side of the road, being left for dead on Anzac Day a day we remember mateship and self-sacrifice, and he was left as roadkill. Martin Pearson was a quiet and gentle family man with a quirky, dry sense of humour, The 61-year-old was originally from Tamworth in New South Wales and had moved to Queensland four years earlier with his wife Sandy. They lived on a small acreage property in Lowood, a rural area to the west of Brisbane. Martin was an associate professor and doctor of veterinary anaesthesia, 
and he worked at the University of Queensland's Gatton campus. Close enough, he could ride his bike. Martin was a well-respected teacher and very passionate about educating veterinary practitioners and specialists. And he was always up for a chat about cycling and passing on what he knew about bikes. This was his passion. He was a fit and healthy man whose favourite food was broccoli. And perhaps it was this green veg that fueled him over the dozens of challenging cycling events he'd participated in over the years. Martin had completed the London-Edinburgh-London ride two times. This event is described as Britain's greatest cycling challenge, a five-day ride back and forth between the two cities. He was well known on both the Australian and European cycling circuits. In April of 2014, Martin was taking part in a 600-kilometre ride over nine days, which went from Tenterfield to Lowood in Queensland. This event was called the Audax Queensland Gran Turismo. Martin and Sandy had actually organised this ride. It was their job to plan out the route and find quieter roads that weren't packed with traffic. On the 25th of April 2014, it was Anzac Day, a quiet and clear, beautiful autumn day with good visibility. Martin was one of five riders on this trip, and after stopping at the first checkpoint in Stanthorpe, Martin and his colleagues stopped in Inglewood for some lunch and a short break. Sandy met them there. She was preparing food for the riders and organising much of the trip. They had a bite and a chat, with Martin expressing his enthusiasm for completing the ride and arriving at Dolby for a hard-earned rest. The next leg of the ride from Inglewood after lunch was out towards Milmerran. It was a straight road that would see the five riders through the afternoon. Martin was riding on his own in the middle of the pack, a pair in front of him some way and another pair coming behind some distance. Sandy packed up after the riders left and drove behind them, heading to the next checkpoint. She didn't see Martin on the drive but thought nothing of it, as he might have pulled off the road momentarily for whatever reason. Sandy made the drive between 2.30 and 3.25 in the afternoon and it was during this time frame that Sergeant Tim Hoffman from Inglewood Police received a phone call from his colleague, Senior Constable Matt Shaw. There were three officers at the Inglewood Police Station. It's a small town, a rural location, and all three of the officers had attended the Anzac Day service earlier that morning But Matt wasn't calling Tim to discuss their morning, Anzac Day, traditionally serving as a day of remembrance for Australian and New Zealand personnel who'd served and died in military conflicts. He was calling to advise Tim of an accident that had been reported and he and Tim needed to attend the scene. They arrived a short time later on the Milmerran Road and as soon as they arrived, it was clear something tragic had occurred. There was a bike entangled in a nearby fence and a man with horrific injuries just in front of the bike. It was clear to both Tim and Matt that he was deceased and the scene was consistent with him having been hit by a passing vehicle. And this had occurred at quite some speed as he and the bike had been thrown some 30 or 40 metres from where the impact had occurred. There was a trail of debris leading back to that point of impact, which consisted of sunglasses, mirrors, gloves, water bottles, shoes... GPS devices and a tail light. It wasn't long before two other cyclists who the officers had passed on their way arrived at the scene and Tim and Matt had to stop them before they got too close. They said there was a cyclist who'd been hit and was deceased. The pair, undoubtedly shocked, said they hoped it wasn't their colleague Martin. Sandy, who was at the next checkpoint, received a call shortly thereafter and returned to the scene back along Milmerran Road. 
As soon as she arrived, she saw Martin's bike entangled in the fence and a body on the ground which had since been covered. There was no doubt it was her husband, Martin. Martin was a very experienced rider who always wore reflective equipment. He had a number of flashing lights on his bike and he wore bright fluorescent clothing. He even had a GPS on his bike. He was very safety conscious and had been riding along a straight and clear stretch of road. How had this happened? Where was the driver and why hadn't they stopped? It was a possibility that they hadn't seen or heard the collision or maybe they thought they had clipped some wildlife. But with the rear wheel of the bike located on the opposite side of the road and the sheer amount of debris around the place, it was hard to imagine they hadn't seen or at least heard something. Martin received devastating injuries, which we won't detail, but it was noted in the autopsy report that Martin had likely died quite quickly. Ordinarily, with such a scene, police would have organised a forensic crash investigator to investigate the matter to its full extent. However, with them being remote and having limited resources, one of these investigators was only available for a short time to visit and map out the scene. This left the primary investigation in the hands of Sergeant Tim Hoffman and Senior Constable Matt Shaw. They were both experienced officers, but still, they were local coppers who'd only investigated general traffic crashes, not something like this. It was quite a daunting task ahead of them, and they certainly got the feeling that people thought they weren't going to be able to locate this phantom driver. How would they? Matt even had the thought about the driver himself, stating, I just had a feeling that whoever did it would have been thinking, those country coppers aren't going to solve this. They're not going to know where to look. I'll get away with it. Regardless, the pair gave it their best shot. There were some obvious standout pieces of evidence at the scene. Firstly, a blue mark on the heel of one of Martin's shoes. This hadn't been there before the crash. Those who knew him verified this. He was quite fastidious about his gear, so this big blue mark stood out. Secondly, a rather large Light Force branded spotlight was located at the scene too. This spotty was far too big for a bike and those who knew him confirmed that it wasn't from Martin's bike. It was clearly from a vehicle, the vehicle that had struck Martin. So this piece of evidence was very important and was exactly where the police began with their investigation. Meanwhile, they and Sandy appealed to the public to come forward with any information. Perhaps the driver themselves would realise and call authorities. Sandy's plea was widely circulated throughout the local media, so it was a decent chance the driver would have seen it and called in. If you are going to sit on that for the rest of your life, you are going to have a pretty tortured life. Not many people could bear that cross, Sandy said. But the driver didn't call in. Police began their inquiries at a local service station. Here, they hoped CCTV would be able to help them see the vehicles passing and heading in the direction of the accident scene. But the CCTV was only covering a portion of the road, capturing the bottom half of the vehicles. It was more set up to capture vehicles at the actual service station. Try as they might, the two officers were unable to spot any vehicles going past at the time with a missing spotlight. All was seemingly lost with this lead until the officers then realised there were some traffic counters, those rubber strips you sometimes drive across about five minutes down the road from the accident scene. Turns out, these little rubber strips were quite sophisticated and recorded a lot more than just a few numbers. They're actually satellite-timed, these things, so very accurate. They also record vehicle speeds, the number of axles a vehicle has, and how far apart those axles are, which obviously gives quite a specific set of identifying features. 
But accessing and analysing all of this information was outside of Tim and Matt's skill sets, with their regular daily duties needing to be done too. So they requested assistance and got it from Detective Sergeant Ryan Harmer. Ryan was located at the Warwick CIB and he was given the job of heading out to Inglewood to assist with the data retrieval and to aid in the investigation. A second aspect the trio looked into from here was the GPS on Martin's bike. If this GPS was actually turned on at the time, it might have kept a track log from which they could then determine the exact time of the accident because there was a fairly broad window at this stage. And it turned out that it was recording a track log, they were able to get this data, and it clearly showed the speed of Martin's bike going from between 20 and 30 kilometres per hour, which it had averaged that day, straight down to zero at exactly 3.14 and 43 seconds in the afternoon. Now they had the accident time, they could match the potential vehicle from the traffic counter. Driving at 98 kilometres per hour, just under the speed limit, along the Inglewood Milmerran Road, would mean the right vehicle would hit the traffic counter at 3.09pm. The axle combination showed it was quite rare, and Matt decided to go back through the CCTV one evening, now they had the precise accident time, and at 3.09 on the video he saw a truck and called Tim. I've found the truck, Matt said, to which Tim responded in disbelief. He went down to the station and the pair reviewed it again and then went online to try and identify the truck. They could see the truck had grain bins as the trailer, so presumably it was someone carting grain and working on Anzac Day. Searches online revealed it was highly likely this truck was an Argosy Freightliner. Tim went on to the Department of Transport Records to check for a similar tip truck, white in colour, and got three potential hits. One was registered in Rockhampton and the other two were registered to a guy in Kingsthorpe in the Toowoomba region. His name was Geoffrey Sleber and he was one of the owners of Sleber Farming who ran a grain storage facility in the area. He drove and picked up grain as part of his daily duties. He was the likely driver of this vehicle but he had no tickets, no concerning driving record or anything else that stood out. Based on the truck type, Police knew he would have loaded up that day to bring grain back to their facility and based on the route taken, he'd likely done so in the Yalaban area, some 30 minutes west of Inglewood. So Matt and Tim jumped onto Google Maps and tried to locate a few farms with grain silos. They then called these farmers to check if they had a pickup on Anzac Day. After ringing half a dozen and feeling like they were grasping at straws, one of the farmers replied, Yep, I was carting grain that day. When Tim asked who was doing it for him, the farmer said, Jeffrey Sleber. So the officers were convinced they had the truck and it was Jeffrey Sleber driving it, but they needed more definite proof that the truck had hit Martin Pearson. Sleber farming trucks regularly travelled to a Brisbane location for business purposes. So Detective Ryan Harmer sought footage of the truck believed to be involved from this Brisbane location over a number of days and it showed something quite interesting. Two days before the accident, it had both spotlights. Two days after, it had no spotlights. And then days later again, it had the spotlights replaced. So this told police that the spotties had been removed and then replaced either side of the accident. It enabled Ryan to obtain search warrants for Sleber Farming and Jeffrey's house and a crime scene warrant for the truck itself. 
Police intercepted the truck soon after pulling into a nearby grain facility and Ryan advised Jeffrey Sleebar that they were investigating the death of Martin Pearson and gave him the appropriate cautions and warnings. Jeffrey said he had no idea what they were talking about and didn't seem upset or show any emotions at all really and let the police go about their business. While they were doing so, Tim spotted the mud flap of the truck, which had a blue border around it. He took a photo of it and sent it on to Matt, noting this was likely the blue colour they had located on the back of Martin's shoe. Ryan then had Jeffrey accompany him back to his house, where police conducted further searches and located an identical light force spotlight to what had been found at the scene. Police formed the belief that the light had been removed in an attempt to disguise his involvement in the incident, and this provided sufficient evidence for the police to charge Jeffrey Sleeber. It was a surprise to many, including Martin's family, that the police had even found the driver, let alone uncovered evidence sufficient to press charges. It wasn't an impossible investigation, but close to it, and the three officers spearheading it couldn't have done a better job. But before Jeffrey Sleeber would go to trial, a mysterious and even darker tale from his past would surface. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jeffrey Sleeber met his future wife, Leanne, at a local rugby union match. By 2008, they had been married for 13 years and had four children. Leanne was described as a wonderful mother who was heavily involved with her kids' school, but otherwise she kept a relatively low profile in the community. Jeffrey worked hard and long hours for the Sleber Family Grain Company. It was a big family, a big operation, and they employed a lot of people. The Slebers were well known in the local community, and Jeffrey, when he was home, showed his kids a great deal of love and they loved him. On the 24th of April 2008, Anzac Day Eve, some six years before Martin Pearson's death, Leanne arrived home at their property in Kingsthorpe around 8pm and parked their Toyota Land Cruiser in the four-bay shed they had next to their house. Jeffrey arrived home about 45 minutes to an hour later and when he went inside, he told Leanne he'd spotted a snake going into the shed. He was worried about this as the kids often went out to the extra fridge they had in the shed to fetch milk in the morning. So he and Leanne went out for a look, couldn't find the snake, and returned inside and had dinner. Afterwards, both Jeffrey and Leanne returned to the shed for another squiz. This time, Jeffrey took his 12-gauge Boito shotgun to shoot the snake should they find it. On the way, he loaded the gun, switched the safety off, and cocked the hammer. Holding his finger on the trigger, he pointed the gun towards the ground as he walked, carrying an extra shot in his pocket. They had another look around the shed, moving a number of items as they did, but again failed to locate the reptile. Leanne had moved the Land Cruiser out of the shed when they'd first looked, an hour or so earlier, 
So she now moved it back as they had had no luck finding the snake. As Leanne got out of the vehicle, Jeffrey was standing next to her and she walked off ahead of him to exit the shed. Jeffrey, intending to follow Leanne, then saw an eastern brown snake cross his feet, which caused him to jump and accidentally discharge the shotgun. The shot rang out in the tin shed and struck Leanne in the back left of her torso, sending her to the ground. Jeffrey immediately cracked the gun and ran to his wife. He called triple zero and then his father Rodney, who came to the scene. A pair of Jeffrey's cousins who lived nearby also came quickly, seeing Jeffrey on his mobile, crouched over and holding Leanne, crying and in a distressed state. Some of Jeffrey's relatives attempted CPR on Leanne as the police and ambulance were called to attend, but by the time they did, Leanne was deceased. This appeared to be a fatal tragedy, a complete accident, but as the police investigation went on, a number of oddities surfaced about what Jeffrey had said occurred. The details surrounding all of this wouldn't come out for three years, when a coronial inquest into Leanne's death was held. In that time, no charges were laid against Jeffrey. Many people in the local community felt a lot of sympathy for the well-liked and respected family man, and others were quite suspicious. An inquest would have presented the perfect opportunity for the only person alive who witnessed what had occurred, being Jeffrey, to clear the air. But medical advice provided to the coroner about the psychiatric condition that had recently befallen Jeffrey meant he was reluctantly excused from giving evidence. He had been hospitalised prior to the inquest, the medical advice said, and participating would have placed undue stress on him, effectively having to relive the trauma of that tragic evening. It was a rare and unusual thing that someone in Jeffrey's position wouldn't be compelled to give evidence, so all we had was his previous versions of events given in a record of interview to police, the triple zero call, and to emergency services when they arrived. All of these versions were relatively consistent, the nuts and bolts of which we outlined before. In short, they'd searched for this snake, Leanne had gotten out of the car, walked off in front of Jeffrey who was in possession of the loaded gun, the snake had gone over his foot, he jumped in a panic and accidentally discharged the shotgun. It seems strange that events would unfold in this fashion for a number of reasons, but before getting into specifics, Jeffrey and Leanne's relationship was firstly put under the microscope. By all accounts, they had a functional relationship, normal, content. Indeed, family members all reported they were a happy couple. Police did discover evidence that Leanne had left the home for one week a year earlier, however, taking the kids in the process. Jeffrey explained this was over a disagreement they had had over him working excessively long hours. They seemingly managed to resolve this as Leanne moved back and had remained for the past 12 months. There were suggestions that Jeffrey had had some inappropriate contact with another woman. This was via the telephone. Whatever that consisted of, it was enough for Leanne to query him having an affair. Jeffrey denied this, noting that he'd met this woman, Mary, and felt he could talk to her. But Mary hadn't gone along with that and put an end to the contact. Jeffrey said he had misunderstood and that was that. Leanne had also recently put $20,000 into a separate account in her name, something Jeffrey said he was aware of and had actually told her to do. Leanne was also looking for work in the time before her death. So there was some suggestion she was seeking some independence. However, aside from these points, there was nothing to suggest any serious acrimony in the relationship. 
but the circumstances of the incident were quite strange. Starting with the choice of the firearm, a 12-gauge shotgun is a powerful weapon to use for killing a snake, especially when Jeffrey had others at his disposal, namely a much smaller but sufficient 410 shotgun. Firearm expert Graham Lippett gave evidence at the inquest, which was later peer-reviewed and his basic contention supported, and he suggested that not only was the gun a strange choice, it was an unsafe choice. Using such a powerful gun in a shed with a concrete floor subject to significant ricochet was just not safe. Also having the gun loaded, hammer cocked, safety off and his finger on the trigger was also unsafe to say the least. Jeffrey said in his earlier statements that he used the bigger gun because it gives a wider angle of shot and he can be further away from the snake and still kill it. And in relation to it and he being ready to fire, he said snakes come at you when they're cornered. You don't have time to click off the safety and cock it. You just have to shoot. Experts also provided commentary noting Jeffrey's reaction itself was strange. If his focus with the weapon was downward, a more natural reaction upon seeing the snake go over his foot would be to jump and shoot down, not raise the firearm. Additionally, the Boito itself was noted as a gun that didn't just go off by itself. It took over two and a half kilos of pressure on the trigger for it to shoot. But if all of this wasn't odd enough, a ballistics expert, Sergeant Ian Bruce, gave perhaps the most compelling contradictory evidence to this point. He fired the Boito shotgun at a range of distances to determine how close Leanne was when she was shot. He then compared the patterns of these results with those on Leanne's jumper and autopsy photos. He determined the best fit for pattern similarity was at 50 centimetres away, a significantly closer distance than the 4 to 5 metres Jeffrey had told police that he was standing from Leanne. Notably, Sergeant Bruce said the particular petal slap pattern evident on Leanne's jumper wasn't present in any shots he fired with the shotgun beyond the distance of 100 centimetres. The next part of the equation in question was the snake itself. At the inquest, four snake experts gave evidence, Professor Jeanette Kovacevic, Rodney Hobson, Richard Jackson and Professor Richard Shine. Their evidence was subsequently peer-reviewed and agreed with in large part by another expert named Steve Wilson. As Jeffrey was the only person who had seen the snake, the main reason for their involvement was to ascertain if it was likely, unlikely or impossible that a brown snake would have exhibited such behaviour. They all essentially came to the same conclusion, which doubted that the snake would have been active at all at that time of night, considering the temperature range at the time. In the briefs they reviewed, they were told it was between 7 and 10 degrees Celsius. Later reports from a meteorologist noted the temperature is somewhere between 11 and 12 degrees. They all said it was not usual brown snake activity to be moving so swiftly at this time of night. They're usually out of sight by the mid-afternoon. There were possibilities that couldn't be excluded, such as the snake seeking warmth from a vehicle engine, a fridge motor maybe, or potentially being attracted to food, mice around the grain maybe. But again, the experts all said brown snakes are diurnal, it was night time, late autumn, and cold by their standards. It wasn't consistent with usual brown snake behaviour, but it also wasn't impossible that the snake had indeed been there and acted as Jeffrey had claimed. Examinations of the couple's phone records and Jeffrey's phone itself showed no inconsistencies in his version of events or suspicious calls that had been made. 
Examination of the couple's computers did the same and inquiries with local hospitals showed no history of any potential domestic violence. The only small thing police had seized, which Sergeant David Breeze suggested may have sown a seed within Jeffrey, was a DVD of the Underbelly TV series. Jeffrey said they had recently watched this and the episode police had found was the one in which Mick Gatto shoots Benji Veneman in self-defence. Sergeant Breeze contended that this potentially provided inspiration to Jeffrey, in the sense that the only witness left in this instance, Mick Gatto, was the only version of events left after the other person was deceased. But aside from this theory, the coroner said there was no evidence of any criminality, no motive, and therefore no way to say if it was an accident or not. Coroner Tina Privetera also noted that the evidence to prove criminal negligence fell short too, as Jeffrey Sleber's storage and use of the firearm was subject to his training in firearms, which was non-existent. She delivered an open finding at the conclusion of the inquest. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. With the coroner's open finding and no referral to the DPP for prosecution, some people, including former Queensland coroner John Hutton, thought the police investigation would continue and at some point there'd be some form of charge. But that didn't happen. Even if it wasn't a murder or manslaughter charge, the question remained. Were his actions criminally negligent? Your wife standing in front of you when you're about to shoot a snake with a loaded, cocked 12-gauge shotgun at 10pm in a confined space like that. Experts again commented that any conduct placing people in imminent danger is against the law, such as having them walk in front of you when you have a loaded firearm and having that firearm in a ready-to-use condition. But criminal charges in Leanne's case, again, weren't forthcoming and Jeffrey wouldn't face charges of any kind until some seven years after his wife's death, when he was charged for the hidden run of Martin Pearson. The exact charges Jeffrey was facing at trial was dangerous driving causing death and callous disregard. And surprisingly, he took the stand at trial, after refusing to be interviewed by police as he felt he was being unfairly treated. Jeffrey Sleber's defence team said he thought he'd lost the other spotlight the night before the accident when he'd hit a kangaroo and didn't see Martin Pearson at all. If he hit him, he didn't realise it. They also presented medical evidence suggesting Jeffrey had sleep apnea too and contended that maybe he'd had a micro-sleep immediately prior to the accident and therefore forgot he'd had anything to do with it. Prior to this, Jeffrey wasn't aware he had such a condition, but he knew that he'd always snored. The prosecution's case was that Jeffrey had hit and killed Martin Pearson, failed to stop, and later changed the spotlights to cover up his involvement in the incident. 
They contended that he had an uninterrupted, clear view for around 13 seconds, and it was hard to imagine that he nodded off for that length of time and remained on the road, but not seen Martin at all and not felt or seen anything to do with the impact. There was a strong feeling amongst the gallery and Martin Pearson's family that Geoffrey was going to get off, as his defence team was said to have been quite good. And indeed, when the verdict was read, he was found not guilty of callous disregard. When it came to the dangerous driving causing death charge, however, Jeffrey Sleeber was found guilty. So they were essentially saying he'd killed Martin by driving dangerously, but was unaware of it at the time. He was sentenced to three years jail, and that sentence was ultimately suspended after 13 months. His licence was also suspended for two years. Finally, Martin Pearson's family had some justice served, the overwhelming feeling for them being some sort of closure and proof that Martin's life meant something. The man responsible was held accountable and had answered to the courts as he should have. But what about Leanne Sleeper? Former Queensland coroner John Hutton has pursued answers for why her case has seemingly been forgotten. And indeed, he speaks quite a lot about this in the excellent Australian story documentary on this case, which we'll link in our show notes and was a great resource for us in making this episode. John said that it's a coroner's job to present findings of facts, the police's to prosecute, and a jury to say guilty or not guilty. If you kill another human being, it has to be justified, authorised or excused by law. If this was an accident, John went on to say, there's still the lingering question of negligence and there should be consideration of a charge to be put before a jury, the case ventilated and a verdict reached. He likened the case to that of Victorian farmer David Calandro, who was accidentally shot and killed when his friend Angelo Russo tripped over an eggplant while carrying a loaded firearm, the gun discharged and David was killed. In that case, even though it was a tragic accident, Angelo was still convicted of manslaughter and got a five-year sentence, with a a two-and-a-half-year minimum. Yet nothing in Leanne's case, a case which John says still has a number of oddities in addition to the lack of charges. The firearm safety breaches and improper storage of his firearms and ammunitions aside, what about the improbable snake story, or that Leanne had left him a year before, perhaps she was going to do it again? John approached the current state coroner to reopen the inquest and was told it could only be done in the face of new evidence, to which John responded, wouldn't the fact that Geoffrey didn't give evidence in the first inquest be enough? Apparently not, as the inquest hasn't been reopened and the current state coroner said they couldn't recall the conversation with John Hutton. It was remarked that police didn't prosecute back in 2008 because there was no motive and the case was circumstantial, both of which aren't required to actually lay charges. John has gone on to contact the cold case unit and request the matter be reinvestigated. He's had the member of North Toowoomba, Trevor Watts, put the matter forward in Parliament, requesting the Attorney General and Minister of Police to intervene. And he's even sought advice from former criminal lawyer Frank Carroll to assist. He too doesn't believe the case has been handled as well as it could have been. Maybe something will happen one day, maybe it won't. But you can't help but wonder if Jeffrey Sleeber had been prosecuted at the time and was found guilty of some form of criminal negligence, would he have been driving the truck that day when he hit Martin Pearson? 
Or would Martin have made it to Dolby that afternoon and gone on to have dinner with Sandy and finish the ride they'd planned? Or maybe Jeffrey Sleeber is just one of the most unlucky blokes in Queensland, or Australia even, and his life has been forever changed after two tragic accidents six years apart. Geez, what a case. Um, I only have some brief thoughts on this one. My first is that it's just incredible police work from Tim Hoffman and team on this. The way they use the GPS to figure out the moment of impact and then pinpoint the vehicle, knowing that specific wheel and axle combination. And I know I'm just retelling the story at this point, but it gave me chills the first time I read through that and, you know, saw that thought process. I don't know if I ever would have figured that out. I'm not a trained police officer, but um, just that thought process and that kind of ingenuity um, and the relentless work that they put into it. I think It's something we've seen numerous times in Australia and I'm just always so grateful for it and this is a great example of it. Um, I don't really want to comment on Jeffrey and speculate on anything there. I will say that it's an incredible thing to be involved in two accidental deaths in your life and that's not something I'd wish on anyone. Um, And I'm also so sorry for Martin's family as well as Leanne's in two very tragic deaths Um, and I hope they've found some peace and closure in the recent years. What are your thoughts? Yeah, much the same, Chloe, when it comes to the families, obviously um, two pretty tragic sort of accidents and uh, lives that didn't need to be taken. So very unfortunate uh, accidents uh, to happen to to the same guy, you know, two sort of massive tragedies like this. So, um, yeah, the, the police work, though, was uh, was the sort of high point of the story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, yeah, really excellent and, and really nice to be able to celebrate that. You know, I think we, yeah. we often talk about that where we're often always talking about bad things and the bad guys and stuff like that. So when the opportunity comes along and we can talk about uh, an investigation like this uh, or mm-hmm. one of the heroes in the true crime uh, sort of world, that's always nice. Yeah, that's great. Um well, moving on to happy thoughts for the week. Uh, what are you, is your happy thought? Oh, my happy thought's going to be that we actually made it through the recording because we had a very narrow <laughs> window here. And uh, at the very start of the recording, <laughs> my, I've got a, a young child who's down for sleep and we're sort of trying to fit, <laughs> fit the recording in during that time. We've managed to do so and hopefully we can have yeah. a, a quick chat on, um, on Patreon after this. We're going to do a bit of a debrief on the on the gangland series so that'll be good but that's my happy thought we made it through <laughs> that's fair um mine is that I've been doing a charity bike ride this month um and it's ironic that I'm doing this in today's episode but the timing is genuinely lined up that um it I had to ride 200 k's over April so nothing in comparison to what Martin ever did in his rides but um it's bloody hard and it's hard when there's daylight savings on and I have to go and do it on a stationary bike have not loved it. I like doing things for charity and I'm glad that I raised a little bit of money, but I'm going to finish it this weekend and I am so excited to finish. I've got, I think like 40 kilometers left. So I'm going to do 20 each day. Um, and I'm probably not going to ride for a little while, to be honest. (laughs) After only 200, I'm done. (laughs) That's a pretty good effort though. Well, well done to you. Hats off to you or helmets off to you. (laughs) And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content. 
Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.